Let's open our Bibles now, though, to Romans chapter 13. We are finishing up Romans 13 today. What a, what a joy to, to study this book, to, to, to study this book together. I know that I come in, Mondays are usually for, for a, a pastor, maybe you've heard this before, you're kind of dragging on a Monday. And I come into my office on a Monday morning just kind of excited. This is going to be great. You know what I'm going to do this week? I'm going to study the Word of God. Pretty tough to beat that. Uh, pretty, pretty hard to beat that. And the book of Romans is such a, a gift and a grace. But let's now stand up together as we hear from the Lord His inerrant, infallible, eternal Word. Romans chapter 13 Beginning in verse 11, hear now the word of the Lord. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, Not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you. We do rejoice and we do stand under the authority of your fully inspired, inerrant word. Lord, we thank you that you have called us together as a church, that you have summoned us into your presence as we gather weekly in the very presence of God to sing together and pray together and hear your word proclaimed together, to come to the Lord's table together. Lord, what a a joy, what a privilege, and we pray, God, that by your spirit you would accomplish your good purposes in your word preached this morning. I pray for myself that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. I almost never wake up to an alarm clock. It it doesn't seem to matter. I don't know if it's just that I'm getting older or what, because I used to depend on an alarm clock, and I would need that alarm clock like on the other side of the room. So it's pretty good at hitting snooze without actually waking up. But it seems like anymore, it doesn't matter what time I need to get up, I'm going to wake up before that alarm goes off. Unfortunately, the older I get, it's more like, like this morning, about two hours before the alarm would go off. And I'm thinking, why? Why does this have to happen? But I can tell you this, when the alarm is the thing that wakes me up, I hate that. I hate an alarm waking me up. Good, good sleep is pretty hard to come by for me. And so any unwelcomed intrusion into that sleep, whether it be an alarm clock or a phone call or a text message, thanks for those, by the way. Those like 6 a.m. texts. Mm. Such a blessing. Whether it's, it's, it's demon-possessed poodles at the door of our bedroom, <laughs> clawing, Whatever it is, any intrusion, it's a terrible way to wake up. 
I don't know. The older I get, if an alarm wakes me up, I'm just like, this is the worst. This is the worst way. And I'm never more comfortable in my whole existence than I am in those final moments where I need to be getting out of bed. This morning, I wake up at 5 o'clock for who knows why. And my alarm's set for 6.45, and so I just lay there in the dark, pondering existence. And as the clock gets closer to 6.45, I'm thinking, this bed's never felt this good. I am just so cozy. I've got a million reasons why I should stay right here in this bed. But the alarm is set for 6.45, and it's set because there's something I need to get up, and there's something I need to do. Our passage this morning is sounding an alarm to wake us up, to wake us out of our comfort, to urge us to decisive action. It confronts us with an intrusion. It's the intrusion of light into darkness. It's the intrusion of coming judgment into present comfort. It's the intrusion of future reward into current lethargy. It's an intrusion of eternity into time, of Jesus into our comfortable earthly existence. Because time is short. That's why this passage is an alarm that is sounding for us. Eternity is bearing down on us like a freight train. We will all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will stand before him very soon. That's the reality that this passage wants to bring to bear on our lives. And we need the eternal perspective that this passage presents if we're going to fulfill the moral obligation that this passage demands. This passage makes a demand of us and and how we are to live. And really Romans 12 onward is making demands of us how we ought to live. We need this eternal perspective if we're going to do this. It It will help us. This eternal perspective will help us here and now as we live our lives. It will help us on a Tuesday afternoon. It will help us on a Monday morning when the alarm goes off and nothing sounds more inviting than not getting out of bed. The Apostle Paul here makes two appeals to us for urgent living. We've got two points in this sermon. It doesn't mean the sermon's going to be short. Brad wasn't even joking. I was like, I've got like a couple pages too many in my notes. Brad, Brad, you didn't mention it. I'm going to see, I cut it out of my sermon because I had too much, and I'm going to tell you one of the things I cut out. This passage we're studying this morning is the passage that Augustine or Augustine, if you want to sound real smart, this, this fourth century great church father, one of the towering figures in the history of the church, it was reading this morning's passage that the Lord used to convert him. There's a whole story that with tears I cut out of my notes. I can't, I shouldn't have even mentioned it. We got two points in this sermon that's getting longer by the second. And it's this. Number one, know the time. And number two, live accordingly. That's our big overarching points. Know what time it is. Look at verse 11. Besides this, you know the time. But the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Starts off here, besides this. 
It's a connecting conjunction. It's, it's connecting what Paul says right here in this passage to all that came before it, particularly Romans 12 verse 1 onward. We have, we have talked numerous times since we have been, since we have gotten to Romans chapter 12 and onward that Romans chapter 12 verse 1 is this great hinge book or hinge verse in the book of Romans where Paul has spent 11 chapters unfolding for us in majestic ways the splendor of God, the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the majesty of God and his eternal work in saving his own. And then Paul says, therefore, in chapter 12, verse 1, in light of these mercies of God, let me apply this truth to your life. Here's how you ought to live. Here's how you should live in light of these truths, in light of these mercies of God, in light of who God is and what God has done, live this way. So from chapter 12, verse 1, we are looking backwards. We're looking backwards at the mercies of God and saying, as a result of that, you ought to live this way. Our passage this morning, though, looks the other direction. It's looking forward. It's looking forward to meeting with God. So there's a looking backwards that motivates Christian living, and there's a looking forwards that motivates Christian living. And this morning, we're looking forward. He says, besides this, you know the time. Do you know the time? Christian. I don't mean what time it is right now on your watch. But Paul's going to tell us the time. Time's running out. That's what Paul's going to tell us. Eternity's on the way. Eternity is coming fast. Have you ever meditated on the duration of eternity? Eventually you just have to give up, don't you? You can't do it. There's nothing to compare it to. There's no way to wrap our minds around it so that we can understand. And in 2007, there was a guy named Jeremy Harper who decided to live stream himself on the internet, counting to a million out loud. And he did it. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records for it. It took him 89 days, counting 16 hours a day with no breaks. He didn't leave the house. He didn't shave. Just 89 straight days, 16 hours straight, counting. A million is a lot. But we can kind of wrap our heads around a million. It's a big number, but a large book holds about a million letters in it. We can, we can process a million. If we wanted to count to a billion, though, that would take 32 years. A billion's huge. If you want to count to a trillion, it would take 32,000 years. Well, now we're just getting into territory we can't quite comprehend. Every printed book in the history of mankind, if you combined them all together into one volume, would have about a trillion letters. Then there's a Google. It's not spelled the way Google spells it. It's, it's a one with a hundred zeros behind it. That, that's more than the number of atoms in the known universe. That, that, that's a big number. That's not the biggest number. There's a Googleplex. It's a one with a Google zeros after it. And if you just wanted to print that number out on a piece of paper, the weight of that paper would weigh more than the entire Milky Way galaxy. And you're thinking, why are we doing this? You already said your sermon was too long. You could have told us more about Augustine. And I applaud you. 
I applaud you for feeling that way. Those numbers, mind-blowing as they are, are finite numbers. If you had a Googleplex of years, eventually you will come to the end of that Googleplex of years, and you wouldn't even be scratching the surface of what eternity is. Christian, we should know what time it is. Eternity is coming. And you need to reckon, not just with the duration of eternity, which we can't even comprehend, but there's something bigger. And that's the significance of eternity. That's the weightiness of eternity. Understanding the weightiness of eternity is critical for us because when we step into eternity, when, it, when eternity lands on us, we're not going to just go from one state to another state. What awaits every single individual when eternity comes to them is a person. We will stand before the Creator, the Ruler the judge of all the universe. You will meet the Lord Jesus Christ and how you have related to him in your finite existence in this life has infinite consequences for how you will spend eternity. Paul says to us this morning, do you know what time it is? He tells us what time it is. It's a time for urgency. It's a time for urgency. He gives us a trio of images of urgency here in this passage, and they're all parallel with one another. Look in verse 11. He says, it's time to wake up. It says, besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. The time to wake up has already come. This isn't a reference to salvation. This is a call to action. Paul's speaking to Christians here. And he's calling us to action. The time for lethargy, the time for apathy, the time for dreaming with our eyes closed, that time is over. It is time to be awake, and it is time to get to work. It's the first image Paul is giving us. Martin Luther said this, Christians who are sluggish in good works and overcome by the feeling of security are falling asleep. If we just have this sense of well-being in our lives, everything's going fine. I don't really need to, to keep my hand to the plow. I don't need to wring my life out for the kingdom of God. I can just kind of coast. Luther says, it's because you're sleeping. It's the only reason you would think that way. It's time, Christian, to stop hitting the snooze button. That's what Paul tells us this morning. The alarm is going off for a reason, and it's time to wake up. Eternity is fast approaching. Now, this moment, right now, is the time for diligence. Second, he says in the second half of verse 11, salvation is near. He says, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He's talking about final salvation. When we are finally with God, when we see him face to face, when we are glorified, when we are freed from sin. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded. Salvation is near, Christian. Closer than ever. As we look forward to future salvation, and we ought to look forward to future, ultimate, final, total salvation, it does not mean that what God has accomplished for us in the new birth is somehow still in question. Everyone whom he has saved will be saved forever. 
Or to use Paul's language from earlier in this book, those whom he justified, he also glorified. But there's an anticipation that the believer has of what's to come. And that motivates us. Notice he says, it's nearer to us now than when we first believed. And we go, right, obviously. He he is making an obvious statement. You are one day closer to eternity than you were yesterday. You are closer now (coughs) to eternity than you were when you first believed. It's an obvious truth, but it's a truth that we need to hear. We need to hear this truth because we lose this perspective all the time. Our eternal perspective leaks. It's like that, that time that, that when, when you have a car tire that's just slowly losing air and every couple days you've got to go fill it back up because there's just a slow leak. It slowly deflates. Our eternal perspective leaks and we need to be continually filling ourselves up. And so we need to hear this. You need to hear this, Christian. Eternity is closer now than it's ever been. Think of you're, you're watching a movie and there's a bomb and that bomb's got a timer. Bombs always have a timer right on them. And then they count down and we're watching that number get shorter and shorter and shorter. And we know what's going to happen if that number gets to zero. Soon that bomb is going to explode. We never see in the movies, do we? They just like... I, catch a quick nap. I'll just, if I can just lay here next to the bomb, and I think I'll, my mind will be clearer. I can defuse this thing. They never do that, right? It's urgent. Action needs to be happening. There's an urgency. There's no time to rest right now. There's no time to be distracted by anything else. That's the picture here that Paul's giving us. The clock is ticking. Eternity is coming. This is no time to sleep. Consider the duration of eternity. Consider the weight of eternity, and it is coming. And it's closer now than it was yesterday for every single one of us. It's closer than when you first believed. Now, whether that's the day of the Lord, whether that's just your own death, eternity is coming fast. Thankfully, Christian, this isn't a bomb that's for your destruction, no. Eternity coming. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For the Christian, eternity is a matter of great joy. Isaiah 25 verse 9 says, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. So we rejoice that eternity is nearer to us than it was yesterday. It might be, though, that you're a, you've been a Christian for a long time, and you've gotten used to hearing the promises of eternity. You've gotten used to this, this concept of what it is like to be with God perfected forever. World without end, amen. And you go, I know, I know, it's good. I'm excited. But friend, that day could come for you at any moment. We could be encouraged by that. We should be encouraged by that. We should also be motivated by that because every single thing 
in all of eternity that you will ever accomplish for God must be done in this life. This life. This is it. When that day comes, it will all be over. No more storing up treasures. Time will be up. No more bringing God glory in this earthly existence. Time will be up. No more calling to, to, to your loved ones who are far from the Lord and pleading with them to, to turn from their sin and come to Him and find life. No, time will be up. Whatever is done for the Lord must be done in this life. And friend, your time's coming soon. Salvation is near. Third then, he says in verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. There's a contrast in this passage between night and day, darkness and light. And we see that throughout Scripture. It's all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Night is, is this present evil age. And the day here is this reference to the day of the Lord, to, to eternity, to final salvation. When the righteous daytime replaces this present darkness. When what seems to us to have been a long and cold and dark night will give way to the glorious light of dawn. The world around us is darkness. It's a good metaphor that the scripture uses. As it is with all scriptural metaphors. I don't think scripture really needs my okay on Like, you did good, God, on this one. The world around us is darkness. We've seen darkness, have we not, play out in all kinds of ways. This week as we had our midterm elections, we saw just how dark the world is, just how dark the human heart is. States voting for abortion up to the time of birth. One state voting that if a baby's even born alive, if you don't want the baby, you don't have to do anything to keep it alive. Just let it be exposed and die. Oh, the human heart is dark. And the world around us wants, to, wants us to act like the darkness is normal. We're supposed to act like the darkness, like this is how it should be. This is good. We're really evolving. Paul says the night is ending. The night has a definite expiration date, and it is ending. The day's at hand. And Christian, you belong to the day. You belong to the day, not to the darkness. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 5, For you are all children of light. Children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and sober. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the day is coming. And God's children belong to the day. And, and in eager anticipation of that day for which we long and for which we pray, we live as ambassadors of the kingdom of light in the dark world. We live in this dark world as those who belong to the light. <laughs> and so Paul says to you, Christian, know the time. Know the time. It's an urgent matter. Time is short. The day is at hand. And the, and the knowledge of this truth, of who we are 
and of what time it is will lead to a certain kind of living. And that's the second big overarching point. Know the time and live accordingly. He goes on in verse 12. So then let us cast off the works of darkness. Again, those words. So then, because of what I just said, let's cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So Paul gives us the truth, and then Paul gives us the therefore. The the, the truth is, time on earth is short. Eternity is fast approaching, and the therefore, the so then is, this is how you ought to live in light of that. If this is true, then you ought to live this way. And he gives us three contrasts here to guide us in how we ought to live. The first contrast is this. Cast off the works of darkness and dress for battle. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is a command for all Christians. Cast off, discard, throw away, renounce the works of darkness. Literally, the image here is take them off like dirty clothes. Clothes that are so filthy, you don't even want to touch them once you've taken them off. You take them off and you throw them out. Cast off the works of darkness. Remember the scene in in John chapter 8. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's standing in in the temple courtyard. He's at the festival of tabernacles, the, the Feast of Booths. And, and, and throughout the week of this feast, candles were, were lit. There's four massive lampstands there in the courtyard of the temple, about 80 plus feet tall, probably, covered in gold, shimmering in the light from the flames and the candles and the, and the torches. There were candles on the floor, hundreds if not thousands of candles all over in this whole area. They're lit throughout the entire week of the feast. And you could see the light, they said, for miles from this. All of Jerusalem was lit up with the brightness coming from this event. And it's the final night of the feast, the the culmination of the feast, the night when all the candles are extinguished, all the torches are extinguished. And Jesus stands in the midst of all of this. And he says to the massive crowd around him, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Isn't it true? Everywhere Jesus went, every word that Jesus spoke, the light shone through him. And all that he did, illuminating everything, the light of truth, the light of righteousness, the light of life, it was spoken from his lips. It was demonstrated in his actions and in his power. Even his power over nature itself. Jesus, the light of the world, walked in our dark world for a time. And how did our dark world respond to him? John chapter 3 verse 19 says, The light has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. That's darkness. Darkness, the rejection of God. It's, it's evil behavior. It's blindness. It's the kind of things that must be done in the dark 
because you don't want people to see you doing them. It's the kind of things that must be done in secret because they are shameful. And so what did the world who loved the darkness do with the light? They tried to extinguish it. They tried to drive it out. That's the world we live in. It's a world that hates light. It's a, it's a world that wants to extinguish and drive out light because they're evil deeds. It hasn't changed since the first century. We haven't evolved past this. The Christians are called to cast off those evil deeds, to, to renounce them, to, to throw them aside like filthy clothes, and to exchange them for a new covering. Paul says here, the armor of light. Our armor is the same word that's used for instruments of warfare. You don't put on armor for your nap or for bedtime. Our armor's for fighting, armor's for war. He used this same imagery back in chapter 6. He said, do not surrender your bodies as instruments, weapons, for unrighteousness, but present your members to God as weapons for righteousness. It's the same word, it's the same language here, this, this warfare imagery. He says, put on the weaponry, put on the armor of light. This language is not accidental. The Christian life is a battle. Christian, you have enemies. You have enemies who hate you. You have enemies who hate your soul. Who, who are they? Well, this week you may have identified some that you consider your enemies. That's not who the Bible's talking about when it talks about your true enemies. We battle not against flesh and blood. Who are your real enemies? First of all, you have you. That's a big one. You, nobody's ever betrayed you worse than you've betrayed you. You have this residual depravity in your heart. Sin doesn't just plague you from the outside. It attacks you from the inside. It's, it's this insidious, deeply embedded enemy that you carry around with you every day, all day. Then you have this world and its godless systems that seek to press you and conform you and, and shape you into its mold. And you have spiritual, supernatural enemies. You have Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You have demons who never rest, who never take a break, always at war against you, always battling against you. Christian, you cannot afford to sleep. It's time to get up. It's time to work. This is a battle. Spurgeon said this. You may sleep, but you cannot induce the devil to close his eyes. You may see evangelicals asleep, but you'll not find falsehood slumbering. The prince of the power of the air keeps his servants well up to their work. If we could, with a glance, see the activity of the servants of Satan, we would be astonished at our own sluggishness. This is an urgent command to military action that Paul is issuing to us. And you might be thinking, wait, isn't the Christian life supposed to be a life of rest? We, we just heard the invitation this morning in our call to worship. Come to me, all you who labor 
and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isn't that the Christian life? To that I say yes and amen. The call to Christ is the call to rest from empty, vain pursuits. From the vanity of the hamster wheel of trying to earn our own salvation through our own righteousness. It is rest, true rest from the endless, fruitless treadmill of legalism. Of trying to make our way to God based on our own merits. And if you know Jesus, you know that rest. And you know that it is glorious. It is so sweet. But the Christian life is not a rest from activity. You have been, in being adopted by God, you have been enlisted into a war. You have been brought into a war. The Christian life is one of vigorous, urgent fighting. We rest in Christ for our salvation. Yes and amen. But this life is a warfare. The scripture is full of warfare imagery. Second contrast then. He says, behave properly, not shamefully. Look at verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. We're to walk in a manner worthy of those who belong to the day. Not not being squeezed into the mold of this world, but living as children of light. And Paul gives us three pairs here. Three pairs of shameful, dark living. Things that will rob you of joyful anticipation of eternity. They will rob you of the urgency to live for God here and now. They will cause you to live for the moment instead of for eternity. They will make you withdraw and shrink away from the war you've been called to fight. And in Greek, these are all plural words. So what they are is headings. They're they're categories. This is not an exhaustive vice list. So as we look at it and we hear the specific words and we go, I don't think I do any of these things. I think I'm doing good. No, these are broad categories. Types of behavior. He gives them to us in pairs. Orgies or, or reveling, carousing, and drunkenness. Picture here Mardi Gras, the celebration of excess, the the ultimate in living for the moment. We're going to squeeze all the life we can out of this in our our reveling and our partying and our drinking and our wildness, living for the pure pleasure of this moment because Lent starts right around the corner. We're going to have to give things up. It's a good reason to be a Protestant. We don't buy into that nonsense. It's just feeling and experiencing everything we can. It's the first category. Second, sexual immorality and sensuality. Any sexuality outside the bounds of God's good design. One man, one woman in marriage for life. In our culture, these things aren't just accepted, they are celebrated. They are proudly flaunted. They have their own fancy flags to promote how proud we are of them. Third category, quarreling and jealousy. 
I'd say here at Maple Grove, this one is probably our biggest temptation. We might not, we might not even think this one's as bad as the other ones. That's how you know it's our biggest temptation, right? We, like drunken orgies, those are bad. I think we're just kind of all on the same page about that. Drag, king, drag queen story hour in the schools, like we're a no on that one at Maple Grove. Surely quarreling and jealousy aren't on that level. Surely they're not that bad. Well, friends, this is where God puts them. This is where God lists them. Right here on this list of the works of darkness, just like these other acts of rebellion. Jerry Bridges calls these the respectable sins. Because in our mind, they're just not as shameful as the other ones. But Paul here exposes them for what they really are. They are deeds of darkness. They are out to murder your soul. They need to be cast off. They need to be repented of. Christian, hear the call to wake up. Hear the call here. The time is far gone for hitting the snooze button. We're to walk in the light as children of the light. Then Paul gives us this third contrast. Put on Christ and starve the flesh. Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Again, this being clothed in Christ is not a reference to salvation. It's an urgent call to the daily walk in warfare that we have been called to as God's people. It is the call to know Christ, to think like Christ, to be like Christ. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ is to live in obedience to him. It's to be clothed in him. And if you claim to belong to Christ without a life of being clothed in Christ, a a life of obedience to him, a life that, that bears fruit, then you're deceived. To claim to be in Christ without a life of being clothed in Christ is a deception. Now, God's not deceived. God knows whose are his. It's a self-deception. You are deceived. So if the pattern of your life is not putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh, then you've got a fundamental question to ask yourself. And I'm going to provide you with that question right now. Have I ever actually been converted in the first place? Am I even a Christian? You can examine yourselves. Paul says, see if you're in the faith. We can examine our lives. And if our lives don't evidence, oh, none of us are perfect. And yes, we all sin. But if we examine our lives and the testimony of our life, the thing we're clothed in, the thing that's most obvious about us as you look at us is is our rebellion against God, then friend, that's not what Christians look like. That's not the work that salvation accomplishes in the life of a person. And so what do we do? As those who are not working to earn salvation with God... But of those who have been called as his spirit has has given us life and transformed us and has renewed our mind and given us a new heart and yet walking in a dark world, what do we do? How can we do this? This is what Paul tells us. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's what every Christian must do. 
In 1519, Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortes invaded Mexico. This is not a discussion about whether he did the right things and did them in the right way. But in the midst of this invasion, he experienced a mutiny with his navy. Some of the men didn't want to be a part of this anymore, and they tried to commandeer the ships and go back to Spain. And after putting the mutiny down, what did Cortes do? He made sure it would never happen again by destroying the boats. He destroyed his own navy. He sank his own navy. Why did he do it? He did it so that potential mutineers could not abandon the mission. You're not running away. You're not turning back. You're not going back. We're here. We're doing this. This is the mission. Well, Christian, in regard to the lusts of the flesh, in regard to the works of darkness, in regard to living in this dark world that is trying to squeeze you into its mold, in, in, in regard to the indwelling sin that is still trying to, from the inside, attack you and pull you in the direction of these works of darkness, these lusts of the flesh, burn the ships. If there's a provision for the flesh and its desires in your life, then get rid of it. Cast it off. Be ruthless with it. I don't even need to go through a list of like potential ways we're doing this in this moment because the Spirit of God, if you belong to Him, has got it right on the forefront of your mind. Christian, burn the ship. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It is a simple, straightforward command. Christian, your life is at stake. Eternity is at stake. If you keep a storehouse of provision for reveling and drunkenness, those things that cause you to want to live only for the moment and give no thought to eternity, those things that numb you and distract you from reality, the things that dull your senses and dull your zeal for Christ, it doesn't have to be wild partying and drunkenness like Paul names here in these category heads. What robs you of your affection for Christ? It might be something that some other Christian can do and it doesn't have any negative effect on them at all. It might be in and of itself something neutral, but for you, it numbs you. It causes you not to think of eternity, but to live for this moment. Whatever that thing is, cast it off. It only wants to rob you. It only wants to kill you. Be ruthless with it. You're at war with it. If you keep a storehouse of provision for sexual temptation, your devices, your computer, your smartphone, the entertainment you let yourself consume, those friends that every time you talk with them, it turns a certain direction. 
those relationships that you know have crossed a line. Anything that normalizes the pursuit of ungodliness. Your social media that's glorifying sexual perversion and sin, and it makes you want so much to be accepted by this world. Burn the ships. Get rid of it. Cut, cut it out of your life. Why, why would you... What, what is that thing in light of eternity? If you keep a storehouse of provision for the sins of strife and jealousy... If you scroll Facebook or Twitter and it just makes you angry, it makes you judge other, oh, these other Christians, they don't know. They don't know like I know. News outlets that you watch and you're just mad when you're done watching them. It makes you despise people. Those friends who tempt you to vent, you get together and this is my chance, I'm just going to let it out. I'm going to talk about everybody that's driving me crazy and what I don't like about them. You have your own little festivist celebration together with the airing of grievances. Anything that tempts you to think that it's normal for a Christian to be combative and grumpy and harsh or covetous or bad-tempered or judgmental or haughty or just a miserly curmudgeon. Anything that tempts you to think, yeah, I can be that. I'm a Christian curmudgeon. That's me. I'm a Christian grump. I'm just venting my feelings. I'm just getting it out. Friend, anything that does that for the sake of your soul, sink the ship. It's not worth it. The hour has come to wake from sleep. Don't hit the snooze button on things that are killing you in your Christian life. The the alarm is sounding. Our dear brother Paul is sounding the alarm for us. God in his kindness is sounding the alarm for us. It's time to wake up. Christian, your time on earth is almost done. It's not the time for napping. Walk as children of the light. Put on Christ. And here's the good news. It sounds overwhelming. Wait, I'm not supposed to be folding my hands in rest anymore? I'm supposed to... You know that your body's wasting away, right? I know. I'm 46, and I know it so much better now than I knew it 20 years ago. God designed you, Christian, to wring yourself out for His glory. To, 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 To walk off the field... With an empty tank. And that feels overwhelming. It can feel overwhelming. Here's the good news. God's grace will enable you. God's Holy Spirit dwells within you. The third person of the triune Godhead, Christian, dwells inside of you. There is nothing you can't do. There is no battle that is too big. There is no enemy that is too dark. There is no darkness, but that this light won't shine into it. Insert story about the conversion of Augustine that you should read. We can 
do this. We can do this. We can live exactly the way that God calls us to live. God's commands, all of God's do's are therefore do's. I have done this, therefore you do that. It is, it is His power that is working His works in us. Our call is simply this, be faithful. And we can do that. I remind myself that every day as a pastor of this church. I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough. I'm fully aware of all the things I don't know and the things I don't have the strength to do. But I can do this one thing. I can be faithful. And there's times when we're not. I've been gone for a few months. You know what I've walked through. What do we do? We say we're in a war and eternity is rushing in fast. So for the joy set before us, we get up and we get back in the fight. He's given us everything we need. He's given us more than we need. May God help us to live faithfully in this present dark age. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, by your grace, through the power of your spirit, that you would cause us to be faithful to that which you have called us for your kingdom's sake, for your glory, for the eternal joy of your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.